Just a few words of, of introduction uh, for those that you don't know. I'm Tom Knight, um, and uh, member of the CUC class. My wife Martha here is, uh, and I have been members of this church for going on 35 years now. It's been a long time. But uh, anyway, um, just to give you a little bit of background on this thing, Julie Wright asked me to put together this series uh, starting back last spring, and she said, just put together a a series for the senior adult group uh, starting in the fall. He gave me carte blanche on uh, the top topic or whatever. And uh, I thought about it a little while and decided to do something on uh, uh, prophecies, the coming Messiah. And to tell you the truth, it sounded like a simple process. I, the first way I envisioned this, I, I was going to go through the Gospels, and every time I hit a line that said, and this was done in order to fulfill the prophecy. I was going to look up the reference, and that was going to be the structure of it. Piece of cake, right? Wow, what a can of worms. Um, I, I found out very quickly that our Bible is absolutely full of prophecies. Uh, some, even, some people even describe it as a book of prophecies. And uh, if, you, if you will search a little bit, um, uh, you'll find that there are over 400 references to the Messiah or the coming Messiah somehow related to the coming of Christ just in the Old Testament. It's uh, uh, truly a fantastic book of prophecies. And the thing that this, this stunned me is that all of these prophecies came true. They have either come true or they will come true. Um, and uh, as I did a little more study on the thing, I found out that, that a lot of people have really come to Christ on the basis of their studies of these prophecies because they have been so convinced by looking at all of them and seeing that they're all coming true. But hey, look, something really must be going on here. Uh, this Bible, this holy book, uh, must have a whole lot more to it than I originally thought. A lot of these are Jewish scholars, and I was amazed to find that so many of the really serious Jewish scholars look at those prophecies and they look at the Christian faith and they say, hey, look, this thing has got to be true, and they accept the Christian faith because of that. One of these scholars is a fellow named Michael Brown. Now, Michael Brown doesn't sound really Jewish. That was my first stunning thing. But anyway, Michael Brown now is a, uh, a, a Christian but he is ministering to Jewish congregations because he was so convinced himself that uh, uh, based on his study of these prophecies and the fulfillment of them, that he came to Christ. He was raised in a very strict Orthodox Jewish home in Brooklyn, about as Jewish as you could be. But he, after he did all of his studies and realized the truth and the fulfillment of these prophecies, uh, he came to know Christ. Uh, interesting thing. It's interesting little book here. It's called The Real Kosher Jesus. <laughs> and uh, I have enjoyed reading this. It's a fun sort of read, but you pick it up and start reading it. Very quickly, you'll realize that he is writing this to a Hebrew congregation. He's writing it to people that are uh, well-founded in the Hebrew faith. And uh, um, so much of it I didn't quite understand because it's, it's, uh, it's written with that, uh, in that regard. But anyway, fascinating book. 
and he's got a very successful ministry. He's written, written a number of books. This happens to be the, the, the newest one. Okay. So, so there we are. A little matter is a matter of housekeeping. We're, we're starting a little bit late, and that's fine. Um, we'll probably go to, to around 5 o'clock, uh, give or take. I, I really don't know exactly how long this is going to take, but the, uh, the, the full lessons will be um, uh, structured along those lines. We can start a little bit earlier, or we can start a little bit later. Uh, we can be flexible with that. Um, but the whole idea of having this thing at 4 o'clock on, on Wednesday afternoon is because a lot of us like to leave here and go to a cheap dinner right next door. <laughs> and uh, uh, best value in town. We need to get more people to, to know that. But anyway, uh, that's the reason we set the time. So uh, if that's convenient, we'll stay with it. But if you, if you feel like that you would like to adjust the time, um, uh, let me know and we'll try to, try to accommodate that as well. Okay. Um, I'd like to start out by um, uh, reading from Exodus. This uh, simple little passage is one of the most profound um, messages in the Bible. Moses is out there talking to this burning bush. And Moses is standing there in his bare feet because the Lord has just told him to take his shoes off, his sandals off. You're standing on holy, holy ground. I can imagine that Moses is shaking in his boots, except he doesn't have any boots. He's barefooted out there in that hot sand. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And he is familiar with all of the Egyptian gods, and all, all of them have names. And you know what he says, what is your name? And God comes back with this strong pronouncement, I am who I am. And that's about like saying, that's all you need to know, buddy. Um, I'm smarter than you are. I am stronger than you are. I have been here before you are. You were. I created you. You are the uh, product of my hand and my workmanship. I'll be here after you're gone. And uh, it's, it's a way. The reason I wanted to start that out is that I want this to be, this four weeks to be um, a, a worship exercise because I intend for this to be a praise message. We're going to, we're going to celebrate God today. We're going to celebrate a very, very powerful God that, to be honest with you, I've come to know better through this series of, of, of lessons. Uh, it's meant a lot to me because I've seen my faith strengthened in the investigation of these prophecies, but especially how all of these prophecies link together. Um, Jim McCormick, a lot of you know Jim, uh, a very uh, strong teacher, an excellent Christian, retired Methodist minister, taught CUC class uh, a number of times. But uh, most recently, Jim told us that our Bible, uh, from one end to the other, is a case of God revealing himself to man. And as I studied the prophecies, i become uh, closer to that. I understand what Jim was really saying. God reveals himself to us as we look at the Bible from one end to the other. The problem is we don't usually look at the Bible from one end to the other. We look at it one verse, one chapter, one book at a time. And because there are so many books, and let's face it, a lot of them are pretty boring, um, the, they, we don't look at it as a book. But when the study of the prophecies 
I found elements of prophecy all the way through the Bible. And then you begin to realize what Jim McCormick is saying. God is revealing himself to us through this holy book. Um, so I want to thank Jim McCormick for that. I also want to thank Dr. Uh, um, uh, Michael Miller. Uh, Mike talked to our, our class in CUC um, several Sundays a few weeks ago. And uh, Mike contributed so much to my, uh, the series here. Uh, he has answered so many of my questions. Um, uh, you, most of you know Mike. You go up and say, uh, Mike, I've got a simple question. Um, <laughs> wrong. You, you won't get a simple answer from Mike. Uh, Mike has a better understanding of, of the Bible and the Christian faith than I guess anybody I know. That guy is an absolute genius. And whenever I'm in his presence, I'm, I'm in awe. But uh, really, the, the lessons that he taught CUC contributed so much to uh, this little series that I'm putting together um, this morning, or this afternoon. Let's open with a word of prayer, now that I've rambled on and on. Holy God, thank you for bringing this group together this afternoon. We just ask that uh, you would express my few words here this afternoon as an expression of praise and worship. Bless me and help me to, to bring the truth of, of your your message, your Bible, to the group this, this afternoon. Where I err, uh, please correct me. Be with me, and may the words that I, I have be acceptable to you, to you. And accept all of our uh, sessions here in these next four weeks as an expression of praise and worship. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, let's see. I've got a few truisms that I want to start uh, with to make sure that we're all on the same page. God is smarter than us. We've talked about that just a minute ago. He was smarter than Moses, smarter than Abraham and Isaac. Um, but God is a powerful God, and he is smarter than us. God loves us. God has a plan for us, and God's plan will not fail. Um, these uh, truths that are self-evident, I suppose, uh, but in our culture today, uh, we see a lot of people that uh, think that they don't need God. Um, I wish that they could hold still long enough to study the Bible and understand all of these prophecies that uh, that are fulfilled uh, in the Scriptures, I think that they would understand that, hey, look, there is something very definitely going on here. Um, uh, God's world and everything that has happened around it did not just happen. It had to be put together by someone that is smarter than us, in spite of all of the intellect that we sometimes think that we have. God loves us. God has a plan for us. That plan will not fail. And as we get into the lesson today, you'll see examples of how God would not let that plan fail and how he changed the course of history in order to keep his plan in, in motion. Okay, um, I've used a number of uh, sources in developing this series. Martha will tell you that I've been covered up with books. Um, and uh, a lot of them have meant more to me than others. I, I really want to identify the Disciple 3 material as being a, a huge asset. Um, uh, how many of you have had Disciple 3? You remember the prophets? 
you remember the prophets and, uh, and the letters of Paul, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I concentrated on the prophets, and, and the disciple material was presented in a way that really helped me keep the sequence of history together and understand how it all fit together. So uh, the, the disciple material may sound a little bit familiar to you, Judy, but, uh, but it has been a real help to me in putting this series together. Um, I'll go a little bit further than just the disciple material. All right, another book that has been a huge asset is Haley's Bible Handbook. Old, old book. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah. You got one. Published, published in 1927, 1927, and what I have is the 24th edition of this book. So a lot of people, they're selling this little book, and I found it to be a tremendous asset. One thing that I want to share with you, on the very introductory page, you know, the first page where they got the title of the book, here's something that sort of caught my eye. It says, quote, the most important page in this book is 814. <laughs> All right, this book has over 900 pages. Uh, I was anxious to see what is on page 814. And um, you're going to have to wait until the fourth lesson to find out. <laughs> Roger Davis, you will be very pleased with what's on page 814. Okay, um... As a matter of information, the only Internet resources that I used were recommended by the church. And I was cautioned on that when I first started developing this material. Be careful about going to the Internet, and we've all had some rough experiences that way. The two sources that I used was BibleGateway.com and Crosswalk.com. Both of them were recommended by, by Julie Wright. All right, let's see. All right, this is the way the lessons will go. Uh, today we're going to talk about Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it will be the first segment of Isaiah. We'll come back and pick up more later on. We'll talk about the exile, and we'll talk about the new covenant. Nothing really here relating to the Messiah, not yet. In lesson two, we'll talk about Isaiah again, Jeremiah and Daniel, and the prophecies relating to the Messiah from those three prophets. In lesson three, we'll look at other messianic prophecies, primarily Psalms 22 and 110. But now this is the revelation to me, that the messianic prophecies are scattered all through the Bible. You, you have to search them out. Um, and again, it's a case of looking at the Bible as a whole rather than individual books. Um, uh, this is the kind of things that scholars dig out for you. And I wouldn't be able to pick up on them as much as, as they were, of course. And lesson four, prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Now, that's going to be interesting. Um, to be honest with you, I put together lessons one, two, and three. I don't know what I'm going to say in lesson four. <laughs> I do have some ideas, but I hope that uh, by, by then, by then I hope a few of you are still here. Um, that would be a would be a blessing to me. First of all, thank you all for coming out this afternoon. That was that was good. Okay, a little historic background. I don't want to bother you with dates, but it's important for us to understand the sequence of events 
and in some cases the lapse of time between these events. Uh, David became king in 1010 B.C. Solomon, his son, became king um, uh, 40 years later in 970 B.C. Solomon built the great temple. We know that. The kingdom was divided when Solomon died, 930 B.C. Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to Assyria in 722. So keep in mind that there is a 200-year gap in here. That was sort of a revelation to me. I would not have really thought about that. But these, these are the things I want to point out in this, this chart, is that, uh, the time gaps in here. Um, and then Israel fell 722. Judah lasted a pretty good while longer. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. The first exiles returned to Jerusalem in 520, and the second temple was completed in 516. So this is a little bit of framework for reference, but all of this, 516, that's 500 years before Christ, and we got a long period of history in there which we don't know a whole lot about. Um, not in the Bible, anyway. We know more about it than uh, Scripture elsewhere. Okay, um, that's just a frame of reference. Let's look now, um, let's look at some historic background that had to do, uh, that, that came into play in there. I'm a little bit out of sync on my slides here. Okay, King Solomon built this mighty temple in Jerusalem um, and completed it in, in 959 B.C. He followed the guidelines that uh, his son David had prepared, and uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful temple, well described in our scriptures. Um, he also established those precise laws that the, um, the priest would carry out, the, le the festivals and all of that, that were outlined in Deuteronomy, were really put in place when Solomon completed his temple. That's when the, the formal worship in Jerusalem really first began, and uh, it became a tradition in there for almost 400 years till the, uh, till the church was finally uh, destroyed. Um, but it was a, uh, a magnificent temple, and the, the Hebrews worshipped that temple religiously and in that temple religiously, and all of their festivals were centered around it. That's an important uh, thing to realize, and that went on for 400 years. It was a very important part of the her Jew Jewish heritage. Okay. <clears throat> Solomon lasted a term, or his kingdom reign lasted for 40 years. And during that time, uh, Jerusalem uh, and the Hebrew nation in general maybe was at its height. It, uh, uh, they developed a certain amount of wealth prosperity, peacetime. It was a good experience uh, for the Hebrew nation during the period of Solomon. And Solomon, uh, of course, was very wise and developed a whole lot of uh, the tradition associated with the Hebrew nation at that time. Um, when Solomon died, things began to fall apart. Um, uh, we know that Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians in 722. Now, they were by themselves for a while. We mentioned that there was about 200 years in there between the time Solomon died 
and the time the Syrian nation uh, fell. Um, we know that Elijah was up there during that period of time and uh, trying his best to get the people to come back to worship God, but the northern kingdom especially fell into a period of despair during those couple of, year, a couple of hundred years. A lot of intermarriage with the native people there. Um, the natives in the area were uh, developing, uh, were worshiping idols. And the Hebrew people, because of their intermarriage, also picked up a lot of idol worship, especially in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of, of Israel. Um, the northern kingdom fell, as we've got up here in 722. We know that. It was a brutal time. Uh, everyone was either killed or hauled off as slaves. And more significantly, um, new people, new other people were brought in that were sympathetic with the Assyrians. They were loyal to the Assyrians. Um, so really the Hebrew nation in the north, Israel, virtually disappeared um, in 722. Um, some of the Priestly writings were preserved, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the fact is that Hebrew thought in the northern kingdom essentially ceased to exist. The reason this is important is that the same thing didn't happen um, in the southern kingdom, fortunately. Um, uh, the, the scholars that I have studied and read, especially um, uh, one or two of them that are Hebrew scholars, indicated that without... God's direct intervention, the same fate would have fallen to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And that's where we want to pick up with something um, a, a little bit different that makes it very significant for the southern kingdom to survive. Um, and in the southern kingdom, they survived for another hundred years. Of course, we all know that they fell they they um, they were uh, they did eventually fall to Babylon, but <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah was in the southern kingdom, and King Hezekiah was there as well. Hezekiah was a good king, and this was before 701 B.C. Well, around 701 B.C. before the the, the southern kingdom fell. Um, the Assyrians continued their advance. The, the northern kingdom had already fallen. The Syrians, we know, or the Assyrians went on down the coast of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. They invaded Egypt. But all of this time, they were looking very hungrily at the kingdom of Judah. Um, keep in mind, the Holy Temple and Jerusalem, of course, were in the kingdom of Judah. Um, and in 701, they were knocking on the door of Jerusalem. Um, they had already wiped out a lot of the Hebrew cities in the area of Judah, those surrounding Jerusalem. And they essentially had Jerusalem surrounded. This was a mighty nation, and they were beating on the walls of Jerusalem. Um, Isaiah was there encouraging King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah had been a very good king, as I mentioned. He had encouraged uh, the reinstatement of the uh, worship in the, in the temple. He had cleaned up a lot of the idols that were in the area, but there was still some idol worship going on. But anyway, Hezekiah had been a good king. 
And Isaiah was there with him, trying to warn him about the Assyrians knocking on the door. Isaiah is, uh, or Hezekiah is scared to death. He is about to surrender to the Assyrians. As a matter of fact, he knows the city is surrounded. surrounded. The Assyrian commander sends him a message saying, Surrender, or we're going to burn your city down. And Isaiah at the time gives him a prophecy that says, essentially, hang on, God is with us, God will not let us fall. Um, He uh, went on to say that, uh, prophesy that the kingdom, the kingdom will not fail, that God will send an angel to protect Jerusalem. Um, Hezekiah is really concerned that that is not going to happen. But anyway, Isaiah has a very strong uh, prayer that's described in Kings and also in Chronicles that the Lord uh, should protect Jerusalem. Well, Scripture says that an angel of the Lord came and infected or killed the Assyrian troops that were about to invade uh, Jerusalem. It's really interesting. You find this described very well, not only in our Bible, but also in the history of Assyria. The Assyrian history describes it a little bit differently, though. They say that a plague hit their troops that were surrounding the walls of Jerusalem. Well, it doesn't really matter to me whether an angel of the Lord came in and killed them all or the Lord sent a plague. The fact is that they turned on their heels, went back to Assyria, and Jerusalem survived. Um, A major turning point in the history of the Hebrew nation because Jerusalem went on to last for well over the hundred years before they fell to the Babylonians. And this was a key period in Uh, in the Hebrew history. Um, And it was prophesied as a part of the first part of Isaiah that a remnant would survive. The northern kingdom had already fallen, but the southern kingdom would survive in spite of the strength of the Assyrian army. And that a remnant would survive that would protect them and continue the strain of the Hebrew people um, for uh, from then on, and of course that that happened. That full, prophecy was fulfilled. Um, today we understand that the prophecy in Isaiah meant more than just the survival of Jerusalem. It meant survival of Hebrew thinking. Of course, the thinking that led to um, the birth of Christ and the the, the the faith that we still develop today survived based on Isaiah's prayers and his prophecy that a remnant would survive. Um, let's look at the reasons that this was so important. I mentioned that um, Hezekiah was a good king, and he had he had destroyed a lot of the idols that were uh, worshipped in the area he had installed. Um, many uh, upgrades to the temple. He had uh, reestablished the uh, the worship and the festivals. And but he was about to give in to the Assyrians had it not been for Isaiah's influence. 
But Hezekiah's work continued now that uh, Jerusalem would survive. And um, Isaiah went on to complete his messianic prophecies. And we'll get into those uh, next week. Um, had, had Jerusalem fallen, chances are very good that Isaiah would have been killed. Um, of course, Isaiah died a few years later. And uh, Jeremiah emerged as a, as a prophet. Um, and we'll talk more about Jeremiah in just a minute. Um, later on, King uh, Josiah led another form, another reform. During that hundred years or so, we had some good kings and some bad kings. There were periods of times when the when the Jewish king uh, led uh, idol worship. The idols were reestablished in the area, and uh, the in some cases the holy temple was desecrated. It was a difficult time after the death of Hezekiah. But King Josiah came along during a part of Jeremiah and led a reform that was pretty significant, not as significant as as Hezekiah's was. But that was another major event um, during the um, survival of Jerusalem as a part of the the southern kingdom kingdom because it continued to stay in place. Um, Hebrew culture and monotheism... Uh, continued, um, survived. Um, one of the uh, the people that I have have read, um, one of the, in my my research, I'm trying to find my place here. Alfred Eldersheim. Eldersheim is another example of a uh, a Hebrew um, uh, scholar that accepted Christ because of his study of, uh, of the prophets. And he's done quite a bit of research on this. And um, Eldersheim says that if um, Jerusalem had fallen, if it had not been for um, Isaiah and his prophecies, his prayers and the protection of, of the Lord, um, monotheism would have disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, I don't think God would let that happen. And that was one of the major turning points, I think, in, uh, in our history. Um, I think that is just another classic example of God interfering or influencing the nature of history to carry out his plan. Um, the Assyrians were a, a very, very strong uh, nation. Had they prevailed, monotheism would not have um, survived, uh, according to this Jewish scholar. God just simply would not let it happen. All right, let's turn our thoughts now to Jeremiah. Um, Unlike the the prophet um, (coughs) Isaiah, excuse me, uh, Jeremiah was was quite poor. We think that Isaiah... Um, had quite a bit of influence in the area. There's some thinking that Isaiah might even have had royal blood. And uh, um, because of that, he had a better access to the kings than uh, Jeremiah did. Jeremiah was a poor old guy, and uh, uh, he was very strong in his faith, but he did a lot of talking and no one listened. He prophesied again about the um, uh, the worship of idols. Idol worship was a huge problem uh, for uh, both the northern and, and southern kingdom 
but especially in the south at that time, in Jerusalem, when Isaiah was there, uh, idol worship was a, a real problem. He lived under some weak kings and some strong kings. He saw that the people were uh, turning to idol worship. They were neglecting the, the temple. They were neglecting the poor and the widows. And he reward, warned them repeatedly that God's laws would have to be maintained or God would punish them. And he warned them that the biggest threat was coming from Babylon. Uh, Assyria at that time had drifted into um, a period of, um, of weakening. The strongest nation in the world at that time was Babylon, and it was apparent that Babylon was on the verge of taking over Jerusalem. Um, and the threat was, uh, was very real. Jeremiah appealed to the people to stop their worship of idols because uh, he feared that uh, Babylon would be the in invasion. He described Babylon as being a messenger of God's wrath. So uh, uh, this was this was important the important message from Isaiah uh, in chapter 24. Isaiah uh, Jeremiah talks about good figs and bad figs, and you may remember this uh, example from your disciple three um, studies. The good figs were those figs that were uh, continuing to worship in the temple, continuing to worship God. The bad figs, of course, were the ones that, uh, um, that were worshiping the idols. And he talks about putting the good figs in one basket and the bad figs in another, letting the people know that God's going to separate the sheep from the goats here, guys, and uh, you, you better be careful. As it turned out, um, the Babylonian invasion took place over a period of, of years. It was not really a big bloody invasion like the uh, invasion of the Assyrians. Um, and some of the people, some of the Hebrews, went to Babylon as uh, a part of an earlier invasion before the final uh, invasion came when the temple was destroyed. And Daniel was among those that was uh, carried to Babylon before the real fall of Jerusalem that came a few years later. Um, and what Jeremiah thought, what he saw as the good figs, were those people that were going to Babylon, not the ones that were staying, because he found that when they went to Babylon, they were able to maintain their Jewish worship. And they, he, they, he found that they were really doing a better job of following God's laws than the bad figs that were still in Jerusalem. This is what he says in chapter 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with our forefathers when I took them, took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, I thought, I, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write on their write on their hearts, write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will man teach his neighbor or or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. Um, 
Jeremiah is prophesying a, a new covenant. Um, these are a few things that, uh, that, uh, that Jeremiah did. Let's get down to the bottom now. He predicted that the, fu- the future of Hebrew leadership would come in Babylon, come from Babylon, and it did. Jeremiah, as I just mentioned, described the coming of a new covenant. And I think this was, again, a major change. It's God's plan in action, and we'll get into all kinds of examples of that in a little bit. But uh, uh, this is God's plan in action. Uh, Jeremiah said, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant. And Ezekiel in Babylon, Ezekiel, another prophet that was already in Babylon, says, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. The prophecies of a coming of a new covenant are really, really significant to me because it's a major change in Hebrew thinking. Um, You can imagine now, uh, the Hebrews had been raised under the laws of Abraham for centuries, centuries, and not having anything an idea about a new covenant. To them, there was only one covenant. But God's plan for us was that we would have a new covenant, a covenant that would be on your heart, and the Spirit of God would be in you, as Ezekiel prophesied. Jerusalem falls to uh, um, Babylon in 586 B.C. The temple was destroyed. There was a, the um, invasion of Babylon, as I mentioned, was spread over a number of years, and there were a couple of kings in there that were thought that they were going to be uh, be, be pacifying the the Babylonians, but uh, still there were some uprisings there, and finally the Babylonians had, had enough. They moved in and totally destroyed uh, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem in 586. But the Babylonian exile covered a period of years in there. The benefits of all of that was that the, the Babylonians were much gentler to the um, the the Israelites, when they, the Hebrews, when they were in um, Babylon, than the Assyrians would have been before. Um, and that's a, a, a major change. Let's look now at Ezekiel's prophecies. Ezekiel was in um, Babylon at the time, and this is some of his prophecies, also relating to the New Covenant. And I think that they are... Uh, Perhaps even they go a little bit further than those of Jeremiah. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, from you, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And get this now. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, and be, a caref- be careful in keeping my laws. I will put my spirit in you. That's, uh, that's almost like a forecast of Pentecost to me. We're talking about the Holy Spirit more than just the coming of the Messiah. We're talking about something really different here with um, the, the new covenant. I, I, I just find this absolutely amazing that these could be people, prophets, that were raised in a Hebrew culture, taught the Hebrew laws, taught the laws of Moses, without any idea of there being any other covenant. 
For them, the law of Moses was the law of the land. God had blessed the Hebrew people, and goodness knows he had spared them at that point in time, the invasion of the Assyrians, and God was on their side. And here somehow somebody starts thinking about a new covenant. Why should we need a new covenant? We've got one that's been in place for centuries. God has blessed us. We are God's chosen people. Well, somehow God put a thought in the minds of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that we needed a new covenant. And because of that, we had a coming Messiah. We had Pentecost. We have had, uh, let's face it, we're here today because there is a new covenant. Um, my Life Applications Bible points out several differences between the Old and New Covenant, and I, I think that these are significant, and I just wanted to share them with you. The Old Covenant was placed on stone tablets. That's the Ten Commandments. That's what we got from, from Moses, based on laws. We know at that point in time that there are zillions of laws, and it had to be taught. It wasn't intuitive, and it established a legalistic relationship with God. Contrast that with the New Covenant, the covenant that we're all familiar with, that, that we live under. And here we look back at Ezekiel and Jeremiah where they said that the, the New Covenant would be placed on your heart. It would be based on desire to love and serve God rather than trying to keep a whole lot of laws. It would be known to all. And well, I don't know about that, but we're getting there, I guess. But it would lead us to a personal relationship with God. Um, I'll have to tell you, my personal relationship with God has been strengthened by my study of, of these, uh, these prophets and the fulfillment of the prophecies. Um, but uh, I thought that that was a pretty significant analysis of the, uh, the situation of the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. I want to talk now a little bit about the importance of the exile. Um, we've Just a review, we talked about the fall of the Assyrians. We talked about how God spared uh, Judah, especially the, the city of Jerusalem, and enabled the Hebrew culture to continue for uh, about 150 years in there before the Hebrew exile. But the most significant thing is that the Hebrew people in the southern kingdom were spared the raft of the Assyrians. We pointed out earlier that had Assyria conquered Jerusalem, we know that the northern kingdom, Hebrew thought, was wiped out completely. The same thing could have happened in the southern kingdom had God not prevailed. Um, but now we look at the exile in Babylon. Of course, we know that Jerusalem eventually did fall. But things are very significant about the Babylonian exile, so much different than it would have been if Assyria had invaded 150 years earlier. The Babylonian exile lasted for 70 years, precisely as forecasted, prophesied by Jeremiah. He said that it would last for 70 years. It did, exactly. Skilled craftsmen were allowed to go to Babylon um, and keep their crafts. The leaders in the Hebrew nation were uh, taken to, to Babylon. We've already talked about Daniel being one of them. Um, 
and uh, uh, a lot of them became parts of the of the government there. Um, so instead of destroying the Hebrew nation, the Babylons allowed it to continue in the exile during Babylon. The exiles were allowed to establish uh, Hebrew communities. They were allowed to establish worship centers. And over a period of time, and this is where my experience with um, Mike Miller came in, uh, Babylon became the center of Hebrew thought and theology. It moved from Babylon to, uh, to Jerusalem. And we'll find out that uh, a lot of things took place during the Babylonian exile that helped out a lot. We know that some of the Hebrews actually became parts of the government um, in, in Babylon. Uh, Daniel was one, and of course Nehemiah was uh, another. But the, big, the secret to the Babylonian exile was that the Hebrews were able to establish their own communities, their own worship center, and uh, so much of the Hebrew thought and theology was defined and put down on paper, or whatever the document was, uh, papyrus or whatever, um, scrolls that were developed in that time. These are the products of the Babylonian exile. Um, books of the Old Testament were completed, a lot of them. Um, if you're familiar with the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, you know that the, the, the Bible today consists of um, a, a merger of several different uh, elements of Hebrew um, history, of the, the Judean kingdom as well as the kingdom of Israel, uh, and several other uh, elements of, of Hebrew history merged together. That work was done during uh, the Babylonian exile. Uh, much of the messianic prophecies that we'll talk about next week were developed during that period, and we call this Second Isaiah, and we'll talk about that next week. The New Covenant idea was developed during the Babylonian exile, as we talked about. And monotheism survived thanks to the influence of God when he kept the uh, Assyrians from invading Jerusalem when at uh, the time when the northern kingdom fell. All right, idol worship was never to be a problem again. That's, that's true. I, I, I've gotten that from several sources, um, including Dr. Mike Miller. I like to say that we got a lot of idols today. I guess I'm going to stop teaching and start preaching now. Um, I think all of us would agree that we've got idols today that... Uh, um, that are, are different from the uh, golden calf and that kind of thing that, uh, of course, they were talking about here. But we still have idol worship today, and it's still a major problem. But as far as the Hebrew nation is concerned, they never wor worshipped a golden calf again. They never worshipped Baal again after the Babylonian exile. So this, in fact, was an important product of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile gave people an opportunity, the, Jew, the Jewish people offer an opportunity to think about their faith in God outside the temple in Jerusalem. If they had been worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem for something like 400 years, hundreds of years in any, any, uh, anyway, and it was very obvious that the center, that's where God lived, you know? Well, the temple had been destroyed, and now they were living in Babylon. And they had to reshape, reshape their thinking. I think it's the Haley book indicates that uh, they, they started thinking in terms of prayer instead of sacrifice. 
and they started thinking in terms of individual worship instead of depending on the priest to do all of the worship. <coughs> the disciple material says that the priest became rabbis, the temple became a synagogue, and of course the synagogue was something more of study than it was actually worship. So all of these ideas took place in, uh, in Babylon that changed the shape of Hebrew thought. Not only were the scriptures of the Old Testament finalized, Aramaic was brought in. Some of the uh, scriptures were converted into an Aramaic form that more people could read. Um, but uh, the Babylonian exile was a hugely important um, part of, of Hebrew history, and it had to happen because of God's will. We know that the Babylonian exile ended in 536, and scriptures say, and that's been described in several elements that I've read, 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem almost immediately. Um, but many, many chose to stay in Babylon. A lot of them had been very successful in businesses in Babylon, and a lot of them were really uh, involved in worship in Babylon. The uh, center of Hebrew thinking had developed in Babylon, and they were not anxious to come back to Jerusalem. So it did go over a period of time. We know that the first temple uh, sort of started and stopped. It took a long time to get the a new temple started, and when it was completed, it was not nearly as uh, magnificent as, uh, of course, Solomon's temple had been. We know that Nehemiah came back and completed the wall. That occurred in 445, but the, um, the new temple was completed in 516, so it had been completed in a while before, before Nehemiah did his thing. The bottom line is that God made a lot of great things happen during the Babylonian exile. I mean, the fall of the, the temple in Jerusalem in 586 was a terrible thing. It had to be devastating to the Hebrew people. Um, and as far as history is concerned, in spite of the fact that it had been desecrated and looted and robbed, it was still a magnificent building that we would love to be able to see today but it was wiped out, and that's a bad thing. But God would not let that defeat his plan. Um, and, and we've already talked about the, the things that were products of the Babylonian exile. There's one more that I didn't mention that I don't think that was, that was listed on the, on, the, uh, on the slide. The Hebrew people, we've already mentioned that they went there, but that was just a part of... The, the, the resettlement of the Hebrew nation. Um, once the temple in Jerusalem fell and once the area was in, invaded, uh, Jews began dispersing over a wide area. Some went to Egypt, others went to Asia, and then we're talked about the ones that went to Babylon to the east. Now, uh, the ones in Egypt sort of disappeared. They were, they, uh, they were there, but it was not nearly as strong as the Hebrew nations that developed in Asia, and of course then moved from there on through Turkey and on into Greece and, and Europe. Uh, those nations, those civilizations that were familiar with Jewish thinking were the centers that Paul visited, of course, after the birth of Christ. They were the missionary centers, centers that started the new churches. They were the foundation of the Christian church. So we, we talk about elements of um, diaspora here, 
as the Hebrew nation split into three distinctly separate groups. But uh, um, God meant it all for, for good in the end. God blessed it. And now I've got one little review of God's plan thus far. These review all of history to go back to God's plan and how it has been fulfilled. I've tried to describe it as the key turning points in God's plan. Abraham in the first covenant, of course, was uh, a major milestone. Moses, of course, was another, the delivery of the Hebrew people from slavery and the establishment of God's law. David and Solomon built the huge temple in Jerusalem. And then we go through the period that we've been talking about today. Prophets warned that the people must change, that their sinful ways, their worship of idols must cease. Then we had a major turning point with the Babylonian exile and the formation of a new covenant. Next week, we'll talk about the Messiah and the prophecies relating to the new covenant. I've got one more slide. I missed it. Uh, if you drive down Crossville Road over here, you'll see um, a modern-day prophet, I guess you would say. Um, Mrs. Powers has got psychic readings, and Mrs. Powers says, life is a journey. Are you on the right path? Well, i got to tell you, Mrs. Powers, I feel like um, God has a journey mapped out for us. Um, we may not realize that we're on that journey, but we are. We may not feel like that we are part of it, but we are. All of us have got a responsibility to carry out, carry out just like the prophets did, and they did a wonderful thing. But the bottom line, Ms. Powers, is that God's prophecies have proven a, a proven track record. God's plan will not fail. In, in talking about God's plan, uh, I keep coming back with um, a, a vision that I picked up in, um, uh, I think it was Christian Believer. How many of you took Christian Believer? Do you remember um, a chart that was there that described God's plan as sort of like a 15-pound bowling ball going down a bowling alley? And that ball rolls and rolls and rolls. It may hit a little pipple on, on, the, on the bowling alley, but it doesn't change the plan. Somebody may throw a rock out there, and it may veer off the course a little bit, but God's plan doesn't fail. That bowling ball keeps going down the alley, and I think that it will continue to go down the, the alley until Jesus comes back, and that's going to be lesson four, I guess. Um, thank you so much for coming. We'll wrap up here now. I think it's time to go to dinner. Yeah, George. Question, Tom. Is there any evidence or whatever that the slaves that were taken off to Assyria, that they continued the Hebrew? None. None. Um, the, the, the message I have, George, is that it disappeared. You know, they, inter they intermarried. Uh, they continued to worship idols. And uh, as far as the Hebrew thinking is concerned, yeah. That's, and the problem is that same fate would have fallen to Jerusalem if it had fallen to the Assyrians instead of waiting another 150 years and uh, fall into the Babylonians. Any other questions? Thank you so much for coming. Will you come back next week? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.